What's up, Beardos? This is Mark Hawthorne, author of Striking at the Roots, and you're listening to episode 158 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first, I'm not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com, and you can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, go over the news, and then we will be joined by Mark Hawthorne, author of Striking at the Roots, A Practical Guide to Animal Activism. Paul, Mark is someone I've been wanting to get on the show for such a long time. We finally have a great reason to get him on for this book, which is actually, it's a reissue of a book that came out 10 years ago and a hundred pages have been added to it. It's all about grassroots advocacy activism in its myriad of forms and it was cool because I was able to ask him to provide some clarification on what what actually is activism because I know we struggled with that a couple episodes ago when we were talking about should activism be a mandatory requirement of veganism and Mm -hmm. We spent like most of our time going, well, what actually counts as activism? So what uh, what are activism? Yeah. So I actually got to ask Mark, what are activism? So (laughs) that was cool. That was great. It was so, so awesome to have Mark on. So I'm really looking forward to everyone hearing that interview. Including myself, because Andy, you recorded this interview mere hours ago. So I have not heard it either. Yeah. It'll be a nice surprise for you. We talk so much shit on you, Paul. (laughs) And you're going to edit it down, so that's all that the interview is, is just shit-talking me. (laughs) But we got a couple announcements to make, right? So this is episode 158, and that means that in two short episodes, we got that mailbag coming up. I feel like usually we make the announcements sooner than this, so we're cutting it a little short. You got about one week to send in all your mailbag listener questions or comments or whatever you want to send in, whatever you want to ask us. Episode 160, we'll be answering all those questions. So send them in to thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. No question too big, too small, or too medium. Send them all. The caveat, Paul, we'll be answering most of those questions. Some of them, some of them just go into mailbag purgatory. <laughs> Some of them go into the bottom of our note sheet where we're like, oh, this is a great question, but we need to do more research on this th- yeah. three years <laughs> later. <laughs> yes. And keen listeners of the show, Paul, also know that mailbags mean it's a time to win some buttons and stickers from us. And the way that people can do that is by entering our ongoing iTunes and Stitcher review contest. We recently added Stitcher into the the mix there. All people have to do is leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and we use a random number generator to pick three lucky winners every mailbag episode, and we will send you some Bearded Vegan swag, some buttons and stickers for free in the mail just for leaving your honest opinion on the podcast because that is something that helps us out, increases our ranking in the iTunes charts and all those things that people are always so worried about. So if you like (laughs) the way that we talk about veganism, if you think that we add something of value to the community and you would like us to be one of the first things people find when they search for vegan, then go ahead and leave us a review because it definitely helps us out and we really appreciate it. 
All you got to do is leave us a review and maybe we'll choose you. So close, Paul. That almost <laughs> flows. It almost flows. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andy. Uh, what have you been eating? Oh, Paul, I just had to return to one of my all-time favorite places to eat, and I know I've mentioned them on the show at some point before, but it's time for me to do it again because <laughs> I was in Florida, baby, and it was ridiculously humid and very hot, as one would expect in Florida, but it also means that I got to return to the Reggae Shack in Gainesville, Florida. This is a place that I just can never get enough of. I seriously cannot get enough of it. I had two days in Gainesville to hang out, and I the first meal of, of my, my time there, I showed up to Reggae Shack, and I sat down, and I said, please give me some of that brown stew tofu. And my <laughs> server said, ooh, sorry, we don't have any vegan dishes today. And I was like, what? Like, the place is not all vegan, but they have a lot of vegan stuff, and they really are proud of and flaunt their vegan options and their advertising and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? what how is that a thing that's not a single vegan dish is available yeah. and my server kind of mumbled something about there being a gas leak and i was just very confused about why that would affect only the vegan food mm-hmm. um so i left just very sad and confused and oh, i ended no. up <laughs> i know i was just like charlie brown walking away with my <laughs> head down and the the sad music playing in the background charlie brown stew tofu Exactly. Exactly. It was meant to be, Paul. And and then later in the day for like dinner time, I called to place an order and they like nothing was wrong. They took my order and I was like, did that server just not like me? What's going on? That's so weird. That is but I got my strange. brown stew. I got my brown stew tofu, Paul, and it was delicious. And it comes with some plantains. It comes with the cabbage and the, the rice and peas. And you can get these festivals, which are basically like hush puppy kind of things. They're they're fried cornbread fritters. They're a little bit sweet, though. And mm, mm, all mm-hmm. the chef kisses for that one. <laughs> and I returned again for lunch the next day. And then before leaving town, I picked up two meals to go. So I would have it for dinner and breakfast the next day because Reggae Shack is just that good. Nice. I'll make it there one day. Yeah, yeah. And while I was in Florida, I did do the Tampa Bay Veg Fest. So I just want to give a quick shout out to the Beardos that stopped by the table. So thank you to Jackie, Layla, Corey, and Brenton, who told me that listening to the podcast is his happy place. Oh, that's so nice. I know. So heartwarming. (laughs) Paul, what went in that beautiful mouth of yours recently? So yesterday we went to the Atlanta Veg Fest and we did our live recording we're going to be releasing that next week, so you have that to look forward to. But at the Atlanta Veg Fest, I didn't get a tremendous amount of food. But one thing I did get, I was I was had a little bit of a sweet tooth yesterday, Andy, which is, I guess, not super unlike me. But I don't go out of my way to eat sweets a lot. But I went to a place. I, I was asking around. I was like, where should I go? That's that's in, in that's at the Veg Fest right now. And people kept re- recommending this place, Butterfly Kisses. And so I went over there. I I made the mistake of going over there too late because they had Rice Krispie Treats, which I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, recently became my number one favorite dessert. I didn't know you were keeping a ranking of desserts, Paul. You've been holding out on me. I learned this information for the first time in Atlanta. <laughs> no, that's not true. We talked about this last VegFest in Chicago. Remember, that was where I that was where I realized that Rice Krispie treats were my number one. They over they overthrew the throne of brownies, which were my previous number one. Oh, I must have blocked it out because I feel like it's an odd choice for number one. As much as I love a Rice Krispie treat, they're so simple. Oh, cupcakes all the way at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, anything for me, anything at the bottom involves raisins. <laughs> so, so they did not have my number one Rice Krispie treats, but they did have my number two. They had a s'mores brownie, and it was almost like in a little cake form. It was like a, a triangular shape, and that was phenomenal. It had you know the the, the gooey marshmallows inside it, which <laughs> made me reminisce for Rice Krispie treats, I guess, a little bit. But <laughs> I see why you no. really wanted that brownie. <laughs> but it was delicious. And we also met some beardos at Atlanta. Andy, this cannot be the full list. I think we just didn't write down a lot of people's names. So I apologize if we did meet you and, and didn't jot down your name. But we met a lot of wonderful people, gave a lot of good, a lot of good hugs, a lot of good high fives. And we'd like to give a shout out to Annie, Romy, Travis, Kristen, Nino, Melissa, Shannon, Mohira, and Greg. So thank you all for, for coming by and saying hello. It was wonderful to meet every single person there. Yeah, Every single a, person, Andy. I met every single person at the VegFest. <laughs> Paul is just walking around shaking hands, kissing babies all day long. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like, like Paul said, we're going to be releasing that live episode next week, but that... It's just going to be the live episode. There'll be no chance for us to reminisce about the experience. So I think we both just want to say now that we had such a phenomenal time at this VegFest. And it's our last live podcast of the year. And it was just such, I feel like it was such a really great way to sort of cap off this year where we've had a lot of really fun live episodes with a lot of really wonderful guests. I think we can do our little reveal and say that we brought on JL Fields, someone that I am quite fond of and, and love collaborating with as our special guest. And the three of us had some really good conversations and uh, the crowd was great. We had such good questions and uh, huge thank you to all the organizers that brought us out and everyone was so accommodating except for the airline that Paula had to deal with. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, I was supposed to arrive in Atlanta at about 8.30 and I got to my hotel at 3.30 in the morning. Had to wake up Andy. <laughs> so that was rough. Paul, I feel like because you showed up so late, did you get to experience the like Toddlers and Tierras convention that was happening in our hotel at all? I did not. I, there was also like a softball convention too or something. There's a lot going on in that hotel. This morning I woke up. I'm still at the hotel right now, and there's also a coin convention going on right now. Ooh. But yeah, there's there's just at one point in the evening a sea of young, like I guess like five or six year old girls in pink, like prom dress looking things, just like oh running around. God. And of course, all the the moms that accompany said toddlers, <laughs> and it was. It was honestly, it was terrifying. It was a terrifying <laughs> sight, and I do not wish it upon anybody. And it just makes me just sad about the state of the world. But not as terrifying as when you turn the corner and some at the, the corner of the hotel, and someone goes, "Andy, would you like to look at this coin?" <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't the elevator actually coming back up right before recording, and someone picked up a nickel, and they were very excited about it. So. <laughs> Yeah, weird, weird hotel situation. There's like a Confederate cannon in the lobby and... Oh, yeah. <laughs> interesting experience in the hotel. Great experience at the VegFest. Cannot wait for everybody to hear the recording of that next week. And, and thank you again to everyone that came out. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. With that being said, let's move on into these news stories. Andy, hit me with this first one. All right. So let me just say this before we talk about this specific news story is that the midterm elections happened... There is a lot to talk about that. We record things in advance and we know that the elections have been over for a little bit now. And so we're just going to say that like there, there's so many outlets that are providing really insightful commentary and talking about everything that's going on right now. So I feel like that's 
not something that we need to throw our hat into the ring in that regard. Um, the only thing I will say is shame on Texas. <laughs> but with that, with that out of the way, there was a few sort of animal related notes that we did feel like we wanted to uh, talk about a little bit. And the main one that we're going to talk about right now is the Greyhound racing ban. And I know a lot of people are like, well, what about Prop 12? This is like this big thing that's happening. And we devote a lot of time to that in next week's episode in the live episode. So look forward to that there. But Paul, I didn't know mm-hmm. this. Greyhound racing in Florida is huge. Hmm. It's like a giant industry. Um, Greyhound racing only legal now, only legal in five states in the U.S. And twelve of the eighteen Greyhound racing tracks in this country are in Florida. Interesting. Yeah. So that's like the bulk of the Greyhound racing is happening in Florida. And going to read from this article over at Huffington Post. Thousands of ex-racing greyhounds will need homes soon. Here's how to help. So read a little bit from that. On election day, Florida voters passed an amendment to ban commercial greyhound racing by the end of 2020. Paul, I feel like this is good news. I would say this is definitely good news. I know we always look at everything with like a skeptical and a critical eye and like, is this really helping animals and all that stuff? But I just look at this and I'm like, cool, that's great. Good for the dogs. Yeah, no, I, like, and 2020 is only two years away. So this isn't one of those things that's like, actually, it's almost only one year away. Oh, by the end of 2020. So almost two years away. But a lot of times, you know, it's like, oh, it, this will go into effect in the next 10 years or something like that. But this is like, no, this is happening relatively soon. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of time the language is like, we'll maybe potentially possibly think about considering ending Greyhound racing by the end of 2030 or something like that. Mm -hmm, And this mm -hmm. seems like it's a pretty definitive end. So that's really cool. Hopefully there's no sort of counter legislation or some way for people to wiggle out of it. But the news stories I've been looking at, it seems to be treating it as it as if it's pretty ironclad. So. Uh, Let me read a little bit more from the article. Supporters of the ban, which included several high-profile animal protection groups, said that greyhound racing is rife with cruelty. They cited greyhounds having to spend most of the time in cages and racing injuries that led to untimely deaths for the dogs. Opponents countered by saying that most dogs were treated well and characterized instances of documented abuse as the result of a few bad apples. Which seems like what we hear all the time whenever there's like exposés about um, animals being treated horribly on farms or in the agriculture system in general. Or when anything bad is going on, that seems like the... the, Yeah, like cops. Oh, it's just a few bad apples. Just a few bad apples. Yeah, like literally anytime someone gets caught, it's just like, oh no, this was just some incredibly rare instance that happened to get caught on camera. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting to me, Paul, is that... And a lot of these discussions that I'm seeing online, the people that are they're pro greyhound racing, they put out an argument that I also see farmers giving for the animals that they are raising and exploiting, which is, no, I love my animals. I treat them better than my family. And like, it's not good for me if my animals are not treated well. And of course, like the underlying current of that is it's not good for them if they die because or it's not. And of course, the underlying current of that is it's not good for me if they die because then I can't make money off of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but yeah, I feel that like people are like, no, we love these dogs and like we race them, but we love them. Um, and I was actually looking back in the old time machine back to earlier this year in April. And I found this article at news dot com, a Jacksonville news outlet. 
saying what will happen to greyhounds if voters ban racing in Florida. And I feel like this kind of pokes a hole in their whole argument that they love their greyhounds. So let me read from that. Fred Johnson, who has raced greyhounds in Florida since the 1970s, said if racers in Florida are shut down, they will have no choice but to put down their dogs. He said there aren't enough adoption programs to take them in and racers won't have the income to care for them. Quote, they're going to have to euthanize 8,000 dogs at a minimum. There's another 7,000 that's being raised on these farms that will have nowhere else to go. And who's going to feed them? That's a lot of dogs. It costs $350 a week to feed 60 dogs. So it's like, uh, do you love these dogs or are you just going to kill them the second that they can't provide profit for you? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such like a, I don't know, it's, it's such a silly argument to make and it's the same you know exactly like you were saying it's the same thing that the agricultural like the farmers are also saying where it's they're trying to appeal to people's humanity you know by being like no we're gonna have to we're gonna have to kill these animals if you don't save us so it's but it's like in terms of animal agriculture but so it's like we're either gonna we're gonna have to kill them now so you should feel bad about that but you shouldn't feel bad when we kill them instead in a few weeks when they're ready to be killed for meat yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. It's 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 just it's infuriating that they feel like they can hold these dogs hostage or sort of dangle their lives in front of all these people who, you know, we know that most people seem to care about dogs much more than they care about any other sort of animal that they're they're eating, and it just feels really gross for them to sort of use this argument. And of course, the the opponents of racing say, no, of course, there's going to be people that will adopt these dogs and take them in. And the article does point out that when both New Hampshire and Massachusetts banned greyhound racing uh, in those respective states, the years that it happened, it, they were record years for adoption of greyhounds. So uh, it seems like it's a really disingenuous argument from their part. So uh, mm-hmm. now this has passed. And that means, yes, there are going to be lots of dogs that need to get adopted. So let me keep reading from that original HuffPost article. One fact is clear. Now that the ban is going forward, a lot of dogs will need places to go. Estimates on exactly how many greyhounds will need homes vary. The Florida Greyhound Association estimates that there are more than 8,000 dogs currently racing in Florida. But a greyhound adoptions of Florida spokesperson told Lifehacker it was more like half that, around 4,000 dogs. It's unclear exactly how many will need placement since about 1,500 to 2,000 will probably be transported to race in one of the five remaining states where racing remains legal and active, Dennis Tyler of the Greyhound Adoption Action Alliance told the New York Times. To complicate things further, there are also thousands of greyhounds in breeding facilities throughout the South and Midwest. Brooke Stumpf of Greyhounds of Eastern Michigan told NBC News. Since Florida is home to 11 of the 17 remaining tracks, so I guess one must have gotten shut down since that last news story we read. Uh, it's likely that some breeding farms will have to offload dogs as well. You don't have to live in Florida to adopt a retired greyhound since there are rescue groups around the country that receive ex-racing dogs and work to find them local homes. That means the best way to adopt a greyhound is to find a rescue group near you. And we'll put a link to this in the show notes, but the Greyhound Project Inc. has a directory of adoption groups by state on its website. If you aren't able to adopt but still want to help, you can ask an organization if it needs foster homes, volunteers, or donations. Andy, I wish so badly that I was in a position right now where I could adopt a Greyhound or even just foster Greyhound because I love Greyhounds so much. 
I would love to see you flanked by two greyhounds wherever you go, Paul. <laughs> flanked. <laughs> An Italian greyhound in front of me and behind me. <laughs> Daintily walking. Uh, dream, dreams can come true, Paul. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to throw this out there because obviously it's relevant to the midterm elections. But also I feel like it's uh, a little shining light in a, a very dark world you know there's a lot of negative things that came out of these midterm elections and there was some victories as well so um just wanted to throw that out there in case anyone that's in the position to adopt one of these dogs uh, has not heard about this or didn't realize that this was a situation that was going on so yeah yeah so if that sounds like you definitely go check out the greyhound project yeah definitely that's cool that's really cool i i hope that they're all adopted to loving and kind homes me too. Me too. All right, Paul, we got one more news story to talk about. So this next story is coming to us from Farmers Weekly or FWI.co.uk titled Abattoir Staff Shortages Threaten Christmas Sales. I don't know why that was so hard for me to say. Uh, our unlikely news source, Farmers Weekly. Soaring staff shortages have left about 10,000 posts unfilled at major slaughterhouses, meaning they will seriously struggle to fulfill supermarket orders during the Christmas period, an industry leader has warned. The lack of capacity could put traditional Chinese, not Chinese, that says Christmas. The lack of capacity could put traditional Christmas sales for red meat producers under threat as it will reduce the capability of processors to respond quickly to changing customer demand and may even threaten throughput, said British Meat Processors Association Chief Executive Nick Allen. That was a long sentence. <laughs> <laughs> He explained that between 10% and 15% of the 75,000 jobs in the meat processing industry are now unfilled and firms are re resorting to increasing the amount of overtime they are offering to remaining staff. Staffing shortages have grown rapidly in the past 12 months, with unfulfilled positions in 2017 standing at between 0 and 5%, whereas now they are between 10 and 15%, he said. And then the last thing I want to say from this article is some quote from some dingus over at Farmers Weekly. <laughs> Abattoirs have put in facilities and not got the staff to use them, he said. It does not seem to be that the salary is the issue. People simply do not want to do this work. So this is, I like, I don't know, Andy. I, I guess I feel good about, it's like a weird, I, I feel weird about feeling good about this because I obviously I don't want, I don't want these positions to be filled in order to hurt the production. I don't want these positions to be filled because they are, it's awful, terrible work. And I would not wish that work upon my, my worst enemies. And so I, but, but still, so, I don't know. Do you also feel like there's something that I should not, that it feels weird to feel good about? I think I feel great about it, Paul. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I think before we we really talk about it, we should acknowledge that this is this news is coming to us from the UK, and so it's likely that there are different, uh, potentially different working conditions, but certainly different demographic makeups of the general workers at these slaughterhouse facilities, uh, and so that there might be some differences there that we're not teasing out. But um, for me, I guess the fact that the surface level reading of this is that the conscience of the public is changing to the point where they feel that they cannot partake in this work. I bet there's a lot of people, most people that consume animals regularly would 
still not be willing to take this work. So I don't think that means like, oh, more people are necessarily going vegan or that's an indicator of it necessarily. Like there's a direct correlation. Um, but I do, f- I don't know. I feel like it's positive that more people are refusing to take these jobs. And, you know, the more people that refuse to take the jobs, it seems like it'd be easier for this industry to shut down or suffer losses or whatever it might be. Um, I don't know. What what doesn't seem positive about that to you? It's, it's not that it doesn't seem positive. I guess, I don't know what it is. Maybe the thing I'm worried about is that somehow this industry is going to pull some shifty maneuvers to try and make up for this. But but I guess that could be said for any positive news that involves the meat industry suffering, you know, but I don't know, like, so you were kind of touching upon this, Andy, about the the demographic makeup. And, and we certainly, I mean, you know, we don't know a tremendous amount about the, the U S meat industry, the inner, like the absolute inner workings. And obviously we know less about the UK, but from some very basic research from going right to the source from britishmeatindustry.org who said that meat processing in the UK employs about 75,000 people of which approximately 69% are EU nationals which uh, Andy if if I'm able to do math correctly which maybe I'm not would mean that 31% are not EU nationals and and assuming that would be talking about the migrant workers and it's my guess would be that that's a lower percentage than there is in the in the US you know we've watched the like we've watched the documentaries and we've heard the stories about the like the horrible conditions and the essentially the slave labor of of bringing over immigrants into the US to basically be forced to work in these in these terrible conditions and we can't speak as much to what it's like in the UK, but I would guess, so this is, this is a little blurb from that website, BritishMeatIndustry.org. They say, as the demand for more skilled people has risen, it has not been possible to source additional people from the UK. Migrant workers have not replaced UK workers, but instead have added to them and been instrumental in allowing the industry to become more efficient, flexible, and export focused. And to me, that sounds like, it's like that, Andy, it's like that type of thing where if someone's accusing, like before someone even accuses you of something, you're like, no, oh no, I didn't do that thing. And and they're like, wait, I didn't say anything about that. And they're, and then it's like clear that they actually did that. <laughs> to me, this seems like they're saying this because it's actually, they don't want to admit that it's, it's mostly migrant workers or there's more than they're actually leading on. There are because, you know, with like, with, I guess with the climate over there, that that's, that's, frowned upon i mean it's the same here that's you know frowned upon to have all these quote you know immigrant workers working in your in your industry and my guess is that those numbers are not entirely accurate and that it's more made up of migrant workers than well, Paul, leading on mm-hmm. while you're while you were talking there i did go over to the leading authority on these issues uh, the food empowerment project at foodispower.org mm-hmm. and actually they say that in the us approximately 38% of slaughterhouse and meat processing workers were born outside of the United States. So actually the number, I mean, it is a little more in the U S but it's not too far off from the UK number. So yeah. So the thing that you were getting at, which is, well, how are they going to make up for this? How are they going to make up for the lack of workers and the lack of ability to process uh, animals and, you know, render their flesh or whatever it might be at a rate that the consumers are demanding? And so it's like, okay, well, what can they do? They could increase the line speed, perhaps. Uh, We already know that those speeds get pushed pretty 
to pretty horrific levels to the point where people, you know, cutting themselves and losing limbs or uh, even just sort of having like um, sort of muscle related injuries, things like that. Um, or or do they look to a workforce outside of the UK, one where they can exploit workers uh, more efficiently, I'll say. And and so I guess that would be the potential downside of that. You know, because I think about like a lot of these workers, you know, a lot of these people are not in a position to turn down the job, even though we know that for many people uh, for many places, the the rate of turnover is like over 100 percent. Like most people do not last a full year when they work there, even when it's like the only choice they have because it is such horrible work to have. Um, So I guess I do worry that it'll have them turning to finding labor forces in other countries and and that would certainly be a negative of this whole news that we're reading right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I guess if they're not able to do that, I guess I do have to agree with you that that this is a, a good thing. If they're taking this these financial hits because people don't want to work for them, then that would be a good thing. And let's hope that it doesn't lead them to, you know, figuring out a different population to exploit more. Yeah, which uh, I feel like that's uh, almost seems guaranteed that that's what they're going to try to do, knowing what we know about this industry and knowing what we know about uh, industry in general and capitalism. But I think that maybe, you know, we can say that there's good and bad that comes along with this. And I think that news that people are refusing to do this work because of their conscience or maybe just because they know that it's likely to give them PTSD and high rates of injury and they're going to be treated horribly um, it, regardless of the reason, I feel like it's it's good news that there are people that are refusing to take these jobs. Yeah, I'd say so too, Andy. So you know, we'll we'll keep a a watchful eye on how they try to make up for the lack of people. But I think that overall, we can we can find some positive in this one. Yeah, and speaking of positive things, Andy, let's <laughs> uh, let's thank some positive people. <laughs> Yeah, so we got to give a huge thank you to the following people who have decided to back us via our Patreon campaign, our Patreon page. And that means that they are donating at least a dollar or more per month to help make our podcast more accessible and more sustainable in the long run. So thank you. Huge thank you. The biggest of thank yous to Lauren E. (laughs) Josh. Haley. Matthew T. And Monica K. And Christian CS, who who updated their pledge, actually doubled their pledge on Patreon. So thank you so much to everyone. And we also had a one-time PayPal donation from PRC a little while ago. And I think that slipped through the cracks. So we wanted to make sure we got that in there. So thank you to Pierre. So, yeah, if you want to get in on this action, if you want to help out the podcast and get a couple of perks in return, you can head over to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo, which is spelled B-E-A-R-D-O. And no matter what amount you pledge, you get access to our Patreon feed. That's where we put our bonus episodes and a lot of fun bonus content. But if you pledge a little higher than that, you can get buttons and stickers. You can get early access to episodes. You can get T-shirts, all that good stuff. So head over to beardvegans.com slash beardo, and you'll find some options for the PayPal for a one-time, the Patreon for a recurring, or even just our little web store where you can get a shirt and a sticker up there. So thank you to everybody. Yeah, thank you so much. And with that being said, Andy, I'm excited to listen to this for the first time. Let's get to this interview with Mark Hawthorne. 
Yeah. So, you know, Mark, as I mentioned earlier, he's the author of Striking at the Roots, a practical guide to animal activism. And that is the book that we're going to be talking about most in this interview. But he's also the author of Bleeding Hearts and A Vegan Ethic. And if you've ever picked up an issue of Veg News, you've probably read an article that he's done. Uh, He has a a great blog, which also goes by the name of Striking at the Roots, where he does some really insightful writing in there as well. So, you know, he's such a a brilliant mind and, and so thoroughly researched and everything that he does. So it was great to sit down with him and and pick his brain about what it means to be an activist and how we can all be better activists. And And I asked him if it's okay to criticize activism at all. And I think he had some pretty interesting answers there. So with that said, let's toss it over to Mark. Mark, thank you for joining me today. Well, Andy, uh, thank you for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of... Uh of the bearded vegans as a fan of the show i know you know we love to start with that first question which is always what led you to veganism what were you like before you went vegan what was that journey like for you so lay it all out for us well like most people i grew up eating animals and at the same time felt like i was a compassionate person i was raised with companion animals in the house and when i was well In my late 20s, I had the opportunity to travel around the world, and I consider travel of any kind to be a privilege, but I was especially privileged to be able to live in Europe for a while. And I had an experience in Europe and then another experience in Asia shortly thereafter that really led to me being the person that I am. The first one was uh, on my 30th birthday, I decided to go to Pamplona and run with the bulls, which was not the experience I thought it would be. I went with a couple of buddies and we, t- we were living in Germany and I took the train down to Pamplona and I did the bull run and was immediately ashamed of what I did. I saw how the people in the festival were taunting these bulls and... I mean, even thinking about it more than 20 years later, uh, I get choked up because I felt like I was maybe the only person who was there out of thousands, tens of thousands of people who made this journey and just felt like, how can we be treating animals this way? It was the first time I'd been that close to an animal that size and it planted a seed. You know, I, I, I wish I could say I went vegan that day, but... It took another experience for me to have that seed settle in and take root. And that was a couple of months later, I was living in Ladakh in northern India in the Himalayas. And I was living with a Buddhist family. And almost all the food that I ate came out of their garden. So I was essentially a a de facto vegan. I never felt better spiritually, physically. And as it got toward winter... They didn't have any refrigeration, and so they dug a big hole in the garden, and they harvested the remaining vegetables and fruits, and they buried it in this big hole, covered it up. And because they, one of the few dairy products that they consumed was uh, a butter tea, which really you need to think of as a soup if you're going to uh, consume it. They let this cow in 
to the yard to nibble on the stalks and stems that remained. And I was just very, very close to this cow and watching her and she was watching me and it hit me that she had as much desire to live, as much right to live as I did. And at that point I decided I wasn't going to eat at least cows. I wish I could say again that I went vegan overnight, but I didn't. I went vegetarian over a period of several months and eventually uh, it took some years, but eventually I did go vegan and was the best decision that I ever made. So with going vegan, was there a similar spark or did you just, did you feel like upon going vegetarian, you felt like, I know I need to do this at some point and was there something that pushed you over the edge or just gradual change or, or how did that go? I had a tough time with baking goods, baked goods. I loved to make desserts. I still do. Brownies, cakes, cookies, and I was very uneducated about veganism. Even though I had a couple of cookbooks, I couldn't get it around my head that I could use products to substitute eggs. And so I uh, actually contacted Karen Davis at United Poultry Concerns and said, asked her, is there any way I can be you know, compassionate, be ethical, and still use eggs. And she basically just said, no, uh, you can't really do that. And so it, uh, it forced me to, you know, really think hard, think critically, which was good. And then I went to a sanctuary for farmed animals near where I lived and met some cows and some hens who had been rescued from the dairy and egg industries and learned their stories. And that was in 2001. And on that day, I said, that's it. I'm vegan. I guess that really speaks to the power of sanctuaries. So you're here today because you're an author. And I'm wondering, I assume you probably were drawn to, to writing prior to going vegan? Or at what point were you like, I could use my talents with the written word to help animals? One of the experiences that I had when I was living in India is I met a lot of Tibetan refugees. Uh, Ladakh is right on the border of Tibet. And a lot of Tibetan refugees had come over uh, across the Himalayas. And when I learned about their plight, I was actually invited to visit a refugee camp, Tibetan refugee camp. And uh, I spent the day with some students there, some young, young people, and learned more about their stories. And that was another uh, pivotal moment for me because I really started thinking about social justice in the world. So when I got back to the United States, after three months in India, I started volunteering for a, a Tibetan support group and started writing their newsletter. And even though I had been a writer for many years before that, doing magazine articles and things, uh, I decided I wanted to volunteer and, and work on that. Shortly after that, I became vegan. And so I started also doing writing for uh, like Satya Magazine and eventually for Veg News Magazine. And after, I can't remember how many years, but it was probably three or four years, I was contacted by an acquisitions editor at uh, my current publisher. They were familiar with my work with Satya and Veg News. And they asked me if I'd ever considered writing a book about animal rights. And I thought, no, I, I, I couldn't imagine what I could add to the literature at the time, which, you know, it's kind of funny because this is more than 10 years ago. And I think of all the great books that have been published since then, 
But they said, well, you know, think about it for a week or so and, and get back to us if you have any ideas. And it dawned on me that there was no book out there about animal activism that, that was really current. I mean, I think there was a book done in England maybe in the 80s or, or early 90s, but nothing that was really current and would show somebody how to be a grassroots activist. So that's kind of the, the genesis of, uh, uh, of striking at the roots. Yeah, it's funny, actually. So, you know, now I think of myself as very kind of entrenched in this movement in some regard, you know, with the clothing line and the the, the podcast and all of that and, and volunteering and working with farm. Um, before any of that happened, I don't know where it was or where I found it. Maybe it was a veg fest, but I did pick up a copy of Striking at the Roots. Must have been nine, ten years ago. And that was actually... I don't know. It's just so interesting that now here we are sitting at this, at, at this, you know, talking about this, the 10 year anniversary and this new reissue of this book. And it, yeah, it focuses all on, it's an exhaustive list of almost every type of activism one could think of. And so before we talk about the book, um, you know, a couple episodes ago on the podcast, we did this episode that was all about should activism be a mandatory requirement of veganism? And before we could even talk about that, we got like hung up on, well, what, what actually is activism? Like, does it mean you have to be out in the streets? Does it mean you have to talk to people? Like, what does it mean? So I'm wondering if you have, having written this book, if you have some reflection on how do you define activism? Uh, that's a great question and actually was something I was thinking about as I was writing Striking at the Roots 10 years ago. For me, activism is compassion and action. And I don't believe that you have to be an activist to be vegan, but I do believe that you need to be vegan to be an activist. For example, I think it's rather hypocritical to be out there protesting or leafleting or something and, and wearing leather shoes. I think as far as, you know, going a little bit deeper, I think activism is an effort to change hearts and minds. I think that if you are engaged in an activity, whether it's writing a letter to the editor or leafleting or tabling or protesting or doing direct action, if your ultimate goal is to educate the public is to let them know about the cruelties that you're aware of and you're trying to change hearts and minds, I think that's activism. I think that's a pretty good working definition of activism right there. And that obviously encompasses so many different actions that one could take, um, whether they're big or small. And I love that in your book, you sort of really go through and give people a lot of ideas. Um, so, so as I mentioned before, this is like a 10th anniversary update to this book. Um, but I'm wondering, what was the reaction to this book when it came out 10 years ago? I got a lot of great response uh, 10 years ago. And I was surprised uh, by a couple of things. Number one, I was surprised by how many people outside the animal rights movement were using the book. Because a lot of these techniques are applicable to other social justice activities, other social justice issues. And the other thing I was surprised by was how people were using this for animal exploitation that I'd never heard of or didn't really know much about, uh, like shark finning or you know, bestiality, things that people were campaigning uh, for or against in their countries. I was hearing about 
I was hearing about these uh, activities, these types of exploitations from people in Italy, from Costa Rica, from Japan, from China. I knew the book was published in other countries, other English-speaking countries, but I it never occurred to me that most of the you know quote unquote fan mail and I. I it's not really the best term, but you know, the feedback, I guess, is a better way to put it. The, most of the feedback I was getting were from activists in countries where I had no idea they would be reading this book. And that was so gratifying. And as a side note, that experience led me to write my second book, Bleeding Hearts, because that book focuses on exploitation that's not really covered in mainstream media. So I was just about to ask if that led to you doing that, because Bleeding Heart's another just very exhaustive exploration of all the horrific ways that we found to, to exploit and harm and otherwise use animals. So 10 years later, you decide that you want to give an update to this book. So what compelled you? Why did you feel like this needs to be revisited and republished? And what was added? What was subtracted? Whatever you want to tell us about this update, go for it. We've seen a lot of changes in the last 10 years, clearly. Uh, social media has exploded, you know, the use of the internet, uh, but also things like documentaries. I mean, would we have seen the changes that we've seen with SeaWorld were it not for Blackfish, for example? And I think we all know at least one person who either has gone vegan or wants to go vegan because of you know, uh, forks over knives or cowspiracy. So I wanted to include all, all those new elements in there. Um, but there's been some troubling things happening too. There's been government crackdown on activists. We have uh, ag-gag laws. We have uh, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which uh, went into effect just as I was uh, writing Striking at the Roots the first time. And it was a I think it was uh, it became law in 2006. So now we have all these other things to be concerned about, all these other repressions by the government. And so I wanted to approach that and talk about ways that activists can protect themselves, talk about ways that activists can support prisoners of conscience through you know, writing letters to prisoners, uh, financially supporting them, either their legal fees or their commissary expenses, and just, just a whole host of other things that people can do. Uh, it was just very important and very clear, especially since, for me, when I, when I wrote Striking at the Roots the first time, uh, you know, MySpace was the big you know, social media tool. And it's, it was really embarrassing to look back on it. I think I barely mentioned Facebook maybe once. And, uh, you know, now it's such a huge tool. But, you know, in 10 years, who knows what it's going to be. So you know, this could be just like a project for the rest of my life for all I know. But I knew about five years ago, I wanted to do an update. And I had no trouble convincing my publisher that we would need an update. And it's longer, it's more than 100 pages longer. I also interviewed more activists. And I did take out some activists for various reasons. And I think the first edition of the book had 120 activists, and this one has a, about 140, maybe 141. But again, they represent activists from all over the world. And I'm asking them for their best practices. And I think they offer just some really great advice. And I'm just so, so proud of, uh, of the final product. Well, yeah, it's definitely a great read. I recommend anyone that's listening, pick it up, especially if you are 
trying to find your way in the world of activism. You're trying to figure out what what is it that you want to do? Because it is really an extensive list. I'm wondering if you have advice for anyone that is, aside from maybe pick up my book, um, if there's someone out there that's like, I, I've just been turned on to veganism. I want to take it the next step and and educate others or do something to, to go beyond my own personal practice. Uh, do you have any advice for people on like, you know, because there's so many things to do, like it might be impossible to try them all. Do you have any advice on like sort of narrowing it down or trying to figure out a few things that might work for you or any intuition you can share in that regard? Uh, that's a great question, too. And I think the first thing I want to say is I applaud anybody who goes vegan. That's a huge step. And I think that you're doing so much for animals by doing that. Um, secondly, I think that we should start from a place of knowledge. So get an education about the issues and understand what the animals are going through. Uh, it's not to say that you have to be an expert. You, it's, you know, it's perfectly fine when you're doing your activism to tell somebody you don't know. Um, one of the uh, complaints or concerns I hear about from new activists is they're so worried that they're going to be out there doing something and they're going to be asked a question they don't know the answer to. And so I, I believe that it's perfectly fine to say, I don't know, but if you give me your contact information, I'll find out for you, something like that. Um, but I also think you should consider your own strengths and your own skills. If you're good at writing, for example, you might want to write letters to editors or do articles or start a blog. If you're very extroverted, you might want to do something uh, more outgoing, like you know, protesting. Although that's not to say you have to be extroverted to do that. I'm in no way an extrovert, but uh, it's still something I think is important, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. If you know you have uh, public speaking skills, you might want to do something that uses those types of skills. So I, I really think you need to consider your strengths and weaknesses because doing that successfully is going to keep you in the movement longer. If you start doing something that you feel is threatening or is in any way uh, difficult for you or a hardship for you that is um, emotional, then you might find yourself you know, burning out. And we, and we certainly don't want that. Definitely. And so on that note about burning out, something you do have in this book that I love is there's a, a, an extensive section on activist burnout and compassion fatigue and uh, self-care and all of that. And I think that that is such a such a crucial piece of our activism that I think a lot of people might feel like is almost out of place in a book that's more or less kind of listing and describing so many types of activism. So uh, could you maybe elaborate on why you felt that it was a necessity to include that in this book and maybe talk about the differences between burnout and fatigue and self-care and all of these terms that you include in the book? Some years ago, before I wrote Striking at the Roots, I was, I participated in a rescue of hundreds of hens from a uh, battery egg operation in California. And I remember it so vividly because uh, the farmer, the owner of this industrial farm was going to, as they call it in the industry, depopulate these hens, uh, which means they were, they had become non-viable. They were going to be killed because they no longer produced as many eggs as they, as the industry wants them to, which is already unnatural. 
And so for some reason, he invited a number of activists to bring out as many hens as they could and turn them over to a sanctuary. And I was so emotionally traumatized by this experience afterward, not only seeing the conditions that the hens lived in, but seeing the faces of the hens, I wasn't able, that we didn't have time to rescue. I mean, literally as we were in there, they were yanking hens, the, the workers, other workers were yanking hens out of these cages and I could hear limbs snapping. I could hear their bones uh, of their wings, brittle bones breaking. And after that experience, I, it really occurred to me that this must be something very, very common with activists who are by nature, you know, compassionate, sensitive people. So it was important to me a year or two later when I wrote Striking at the Roots that I have a, a chapter on self-care. I had read Aftershock by Patrice Jones, which I found very helpful. And you know, she kindly agreed to be interviewed for Striking at the Roots and that chapter especially. And uh, it's, to put it into context, there, yeah, compassion fatigue and burnout have similarities, but th they are a bit different. Um, burnout is comprised of three main parts. The, the first is that you know, the person experiences a, a emotional fatigue, emotional trauma. Uh, the second is a feeling of uh, depersonalization, and that is uh, like a detachment or a disconnection from the body. And the third, and, and I think the most important or most traumatic, is a feeling that you're not effective. You're not being effective at what you're doing. And compassion fatigue is the emotional toll that is experienced by caregivers of both humans and animals. And I, I think a, an easy way to remember the difference between burnout and comp compassion fatigue is that burnout can happen to almost anyone, you know, any worker, any, anybody who is involved in any type of work. So they could be a plumber, they could be a, a librarian, they could be a gardener. Whereas compassion fatigue specifically affects people who are caretakers of animals and people. They experience trauma vicariously, and it is especially acute for people who are very empathetic. So that would be people like, you know, animal activists. And we're also, you know, so we're talking about, you know, veterinarians, we're talking about social workers, we're talking about doctors, EMTs, firefighters, all these people who help other people and experience this trauma. So that's the, the big difference there between the two. And I think it's very important that activists are aware of compassion fatigue and burnout and accept it and do not try to push themselves too hard. And it's very common for activists in our movement to say, well, the animals have it worse than I do. And you know, that becomes dangerous. So we need to stop this feeling that we need to be quote unquote martyrs for the movement and take care of ourselves. And on that note, do you have do you have like advice for people that maybe are starting to feel like they're recognizing all the things you were describing? They're like, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. So what kind of advice would you give to someone to, to help deal with that? The first thing is very basic. You really need to be taking care of yourself physically. You need to be getting plenty of rest. You need to be eating well. And beyond that, you need to also be aware enough of yourself to recognize when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling uh, stressed, 
and when you're feeling you know, grief, you know, these are very common things, but we often ignore them. So we need to acknowledge them and say, okay, uh, I need to step back. I need to learn to say no. Uh, I need to find activism that is nourishing to me. And beyond that, I have sort of a system or uh, a bit of advice that I call the active approach to avoiding burnout. And I call it the active approach because it is a six step process. And each letter in the word active stands for one of the steps. We begin with A, allow yourself to be human. Uh, hard as we try, we're not going to win every battle. So allow yourself to go out with friends, have a good time and try not to feel guilty. C is create something tangible to remind you of your victories. So this could be a, a website. It could be uh, a scrapbook filled with uh, campaign victories, you know, anything that you can turn to when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling that grief to remind you, you're fighting the good fight. T is talk to someone you trust. So whether it's a, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, BFF, whoever it is, if you have, it's really important that you have somebody in your life that you trust enough to really be yourself. And if you don't, you know, by all means, talk to a therapist. I is ignore upsetting text and images. So if you're feeling that grief, feeling depressed, it's not a good time to sit down with your aunt or uncle and watch, uh, you know, a documentary like Earthlings or something. You know, those things are always going to be there. Those documentaries, those, those books are always going to be around. So give yourself a break. And V is uh, visit or volunteer at an animal sanctuary. You know, I can't tell you how many activists I've met who have never whistled to a turkey to hear him gobble back or watched a hen take a dust bath or rubbed a pig's belly. So get some face time with the faces you're working so hard to protect. And if you volunteer at a sanctuary, that's a great place to work up a sweat. And that leads me to E, exercise. So whether it's, you know, going for a walk, uh, you know, uh, getting some fresh air, uh, taking a martial arts class. And I'm not talking about bodybuilding or, you know, being some sort of serious athlete. I'm just talking about physically, uh, some physical activity to get you out there, get some fresh air, get some sunshine, um, you know, be aware of your surroundings. It, it helps to give you that feeling that you're connected to your body. You're connected to the earth. And uh, it makes you feel, it makes me feel, feel better spiritually. And I, I think it's really important uh, to do all of those things normal anyway, but especially when you're feeling that stress and that, that grief that, that could lead to burnout. So do you have a favorite form of self-care? Like what do you specifically like to do when, if you are ever starting to feel burnt out? I try to take my own advice. I'm not always good at it. I, <laughs> I do find myself, uh, I'm especially vulnerable to the pain and suffering of innocent people and innocent animals. And I try my best to be aware of that and to step back. And uh, I am very fortunate to have a very understanding partner, uh, Lauren Ornelas, who runs Food Empowerment Project and understands the importance of not only working hard, but playing hard. And so we are very 
lucky, uh, very privileged to be able to take vacations. I, I have a day job where I get vacation time. And so we take advantage of that. We go on weekend trips. Uh, and we do, we have a tradition where on Friday nights we watch just, you know, silly, scary movies and maybe have an adult beverage and just kind of disconnect from the world and, and have fun and laugh. And, uh, you know, those are the things that I try to do the most to keep me connected to myself. I do uh, try to go on walks at least, uh, two times a week. I go to the gym and, listen to podcasts like the bearded vegans and on, on my little stairmaster and you know just try to do things to that make me feel good and read fiction as as well as nonfiction I end up doing a lot of uh, because through my animal advocacy I do, I do read a lot of uh, journals and uh, nonfiction but I do try to take a break and have fun and do read some silly things too I've been there for some of those Friday night silly movie. <laughs> And Chinese food marathons and highly recommend. So uh, bring it back to, to the activism focus in the book. Um, I'm wondering if when doing this research, if you, you sort of discovered new forms of activism or, or maybe sort of did a little more uh, looking into forms of activism that you feel are, are really underutilized and maybe could be used more effectively or more often in the movement. Yes. Uh, one of the forms of activism that I was intimidated by, and I find a lot of activists are intimidated by, is protesting. And the assumption that I'm finding from a lot of activists is that you have to have a huge group of people to have an effective protest. And as I was researching the book and talking to some of these effective activists, I found out that's really not the case. Some of the most effective protests are very small. And one of the examples that I give is a group in California, Santa Clara County Activists for Animals. They were protesting a restaurant that was serving foie gras. And they only had, I think, two or three people at each protest. But they were smart enough to alternate. So, for example, they say they had 10 people in their group. They would just get two or three people every Friday night or every Saturday night to commit to being out there. And they, and they escalated. So they started off with very friendly, benign messages, you know, maybe some nice pictures of ducks and geese. And the, as they were out there longer, meaning, you know, week after week after week, the restaurant management realized they weren't going to give up. You know, these two or three activists every weekend were out there talking to their customers, talking to the public. And it became a problem for the management. They realized that they had to give in. They had to stop selling foie gras and they did. And so, you know, you don't have to have a huge group. In fact, sometimes a smaller group is better. And another strategy that I was surprised at how effective it is and how important it is that I really knew nothing about was lobbying, you know, and, you know, getting involved politically. And I'm not saying that you have to be a politician, but just calling your legislator, calling your city council, uh, letting these lawmakers know, these decision makers know how you feel about animal issues and supporting legislation. And you don't have to go to the state capitol. You don't have to go to Washington, D.C. Or, or, you know, where your country's capital to talk to these people necessarily. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about simple things, phone calls, letters, 
uh, emails. These things all make a difference. And if I may point out about calling a legislator, you know, we have a lot of bills that come up all throughout the year. And sometimes activists are intimidated about calling the governor's office or senator's office, thinking that, oh, I don't want to talk to the governor. Well, you're not, you're going to talk to an aide. You're going to, it's going to be a two or three minute phone call. And you're going to say, hi, I'm so-and-so I live such and such. And I'm asking uh, the Senator to support this bill or to vote against this bill. And they'll ask you where you live and it may be your name and that's it. It's, it doesn't have to be a big deal. So, you know, these are, these, these might seem like big things at first, but they're very, very small and they make a huge difference. Well, yeah, I definitely have felt that um, intimidation of like, I'm going to call some huge elected official and especially as like an introvert and not feeling like I have that, that ability. So hearing things like that is definitely reassuring knowing that, you know, cause like I think about with our podcast, it's like, we'll ask people like, should we keep the food section? And we'll get like 15 emails off of that. And it's like out of the thousands of people listening, these 15 people are the ones that are shaping our opinion on whether we should keep a certain section of the podcast or something. So you never know how few people might be trying to call a senator and and influence them and how much your voice could actually matter in that instance. So I think that's... That's really something good to consider. Uh, so, so having written this book, I feel like a lot of people might turn to you as some sort of authority on activism. And <laughs> Mark's rolling his eyes at the, <laughs> the, the thought of being an authority. Uh, but I, I'm guessing you probably get this question a lot. And that is people saying, you've done this research. What? Tell me what's the most effective form of activism. Uh, I have limited time in the day. I can do one thing or I can commit to like one type of activism. And I want to make sure I'm using my time most effectively. Do you have an answer for them? Andy, I do have an answer. Uh, thank you for asking that. I never want to label one form of activism as the most effective because any social justice movement is going to be requiring various models of activism. That's all important. However, having said that, when I'm pushed, uh, I do add that really when it comes down to it, the most effective form of activism is the one that speaks to you, is the one that you feel nourishes you, is the one that makes you feel you're empowered, because that is the activism that is going to keep you in the movement the longest. And again, it goes back to that compassion, compassion fatigue, that burnout, we're trying to avoid that because it's very serious. So whatever you can do that's going to keep you feeling empowered, it's going to keep you feeling nourished, that ultimately is going to be the most effective. So with that said, you know that on the show, we always love to sort of try and weigh out various forms of activism, or was this protest effective, or what might it be? Do you think that taking that stance means it's unfair to, to say, to assess activism and sort of say, well, maybe this one wasn't as effective or maybe this one was perhaps detrimental, like it, like not even sort of a change in the net gain. Like perhaps there's a, a net loss in, you know, whatever, however you want to quantify it, more animals killed, uh, worse attitudes towards animals or something like that. Do you think it's fair to make those kind of assessments or is it just sort of a find your activism and it's all going to shake out in the end kind of attitude? I think it's completely fair to call out activism that is 
harmful. I do not believe in activism that uses body shaming or strategies that use sexism or racism or exploit in other ways marginalized groups or people. Uh, I am staunchly against that. There's a lot of very, very harmful, unfortunately, <laughs> very harmful activity that passes as activism. I think that a lot of it comes from a place of uh, anger. Uh, I think people, especially animal activists, get very upset with the human race and they get very desperate and they say things that if they had time to reflect, probably wouldn't say. And I think that those strategies, if they, if they can even be called strategies, are, are ineffective. You know, I believe that we should take a more holistic approach to the animal rights movement. We should be thinking about other groups. We should be thinking about liberation for animals is liberation for everybody. We have to include everybody. We have to include every marginalized group. We're not going to have true animal liberation until we have human liberation. And that sounds perhaps like a platitude, but I mean that very, very sincerely. Uh, not to plug myself too much, but my third book, uh, Vegan Ethic, goes into that more. And it's it's just something that's so critical. And it's something that's being discussed more lately, and there's more groups talking about it, which is wonderful. But circling back to your initial question, yes, I, I think that there's activism that is ineffective and should be called out, and I see no problem with it. And I, I just think we need to be thinking more holistically, more more compassionately, and really think about what what is our purpose? What are we really trying to achieve here? And does it mean that we do it at all costs? Because I think that answer is no. So as we kind of wrap up here, this book, Striking at the Roots, A Practical Guide to Animal Activism, uh, it's nearly 400 pages long. I think some people might might pick that up and feel a little daunted by the whole thing. What I kind of liked about the book was that it doesn't necessarily require that you, f you have to read every single word of every single chapter and that... Um, I think it's great if you, if someone wants to do that, but you can also sort of look through and go, I'm, I've been curious to learn about direct action, or I've been curious to learn about lobbying or whatever it might be. And you can sort of use that as a reference guide. Um, but one of the things I really like about this book is that for someone that maybe is just feeling overwhelmed by the whole, the whole prospect is that at the end of the book, you actually include this list of 15 things that you can do to help animals like right this second. Um, so I don't know, you have to go over all 15 of them, but I wonder if you have like a, a few favorites of those or things that, you know, for people that are listening to our podcast right now, you know, we have, we know we have lots of listeners that are new vegans or aspiring activists. Um, like, is there a few ones that kind of stand out and you're like, I think right now it would be good for everyone to know that these are, you know, these five things or whatever it is that we could do right this second to get started on some sort of activist journey. Great question. Thank you. The first thing you can do is go vegan if you're not vegan already. That's always number one. Other things you can do immediately would be writing a letter to your editor of your local paper. Um, it doesn't have to be an issue that's even in the news. It can just be something that concerns you. And, you know, because even a letter that doesn't get published tells the editorial board that this is an issue that's important in our community. 
there's lots of advice. I believe it's chapter two uh, in the book, but there's lots of advice on on how to write letters and other things. You can ask one of your local restaurants to carry more vegan options. If you're a student, you can ask your dining hall uh, to carry more vegan options. You can invite a humane educator to come to your school. Um, so, you know, these are just a few things. Uh, another one I really like too, is you can volunteer at a shelter. You can volunteer, you can call an animal sanctuary and see if you can volunteer. Not all sanctuaries, I should point out, take volunteers. But, you know, those are things that are very, very easy to do as well as ordering, you know, vegan stickers with messages or t-shirts. Uh, if you happen to know a company that sells, you know, vegan stickers and t-shirts and wearing these shirts, wearing these messages, bumper stickers, they all start conversations. You know, even if it doesn't start a conversation, it lets people know that, this is something that is uh, going mainstream. You know, this is something that people are concerned about. So all these little things add up. I think they're all important. Right on. Great advice. So, so Mark, do you have a preferred outlet for you'd like people to pick up your books? Where can people follow your work on the internet, social media, anything that you would like people to sort of follow along or ways to connect with you? Uh, what are the best ways? My favorite way for people to get my book would be to have them go to their local independent bookstore. And if it's not for sale there to ask for it, have them order it, but it's the 21st century and you'll also find it on Amazon. You'll find it on Barnes and Noble book depository, which I believe ships worldwide for free. Uh, as far as social media goes, I'm pretty much everywhere. Uh, Twitter at Mark Hawthorne, uh, Instagram, Mark Hawthorne author, uh, Facebook. I have a Mark Hawthorne author page. And I have a website, markhawthorne.com. I'm sensing a theme here. A lot of Mark Hawthorns. Uh, I did not want to call my website markhawthorne.com, but I had a fear that somebody else with that name might eventually start a website and people would confuse that person with me. So I thought, well, I better take the URL. So yeah, those are the, those are the best ways to get to me. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to, to sit down and chat and share your wisdom on this. Again, the book is Striking Out the Roots, A Practical Guide to Animal Activism. I hope everyone goes out, picks it up and finds a, a new form of activism or get some pointers and some tips on some activism they're already engaged in. So thank you once again for joining us. Thanks to you and to Paul. So we hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark Hawthorne, again, author of Striking at the Roots, A Practical Guide to Animal Activism. And again, if you want to, you know, let comment on question, comment, concern about anything that we talked about, anything in the interview, anything in the news stories, feel free to send those over to thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. And again, just a reminder, because we won't be reminding you next week, we got that mailbag episode coming up. So send in your questions for that. And with that being said, Andy... You got anything cool coming up? I have one more event this year. It's this weekend. I'll be at the Space Coast Veg Fest. Not to be confused with the Space Ghost Veg Fest. Or the Space Jam Veg Fest. Certainly not the Space Jam Veg Fest. There will be no animated characters in real life there. <laughs> but that's November 18th. That's in Cocoa, Florida. So yeah, come on out. Send, send me out with a bang. Say what's up, Beardo. And I will say, Beardo, what's up? And give you a sticker and write down your name for the shout out. Paul, I feel like you're getting a little more comfortable with the Beardo What's Up. I, th I think I said it twice <laughs> yesterday. Re received thunderous applause each time. <laughs> <laughs> I think I even got criticized by someone when I didn't say it. They were like, come on, say it. And I was like, oh, I'm Dance, sorry. monkey, dance. <laughs>
Uh, well, if you want to find the, the link to that event, the Space Ghost Veg Fest, and see the other dates that I already have confirmed for 2019 all the way through July, just head over to CompassionCo.com and, uh, yeah, check out those dates. Maybe pick up a shirt if you want. Yeah. Paul. Mm-hmm. So, as mentioned in the interview with Mark Hawthorne, Striking at the Roots includes an exhaustive list of grassroots advocacy. It's over, it's almost 400 pages. Literally everything that you could think of is covered in there, including some that you couldn't think of. Um, I did feel like there was one section where he fell short. He did not include the form of activism where you just walk around repeating the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegan, signing off. Abattoir staff sort shortage. And I also got a strawberry parfait, which I did not partake in. I did not partake in. They said that they have approximately 69% of workers are f- from the UK and then the remain I would assume then that means that the remaining 21% are migrant workers they said and Paul, it seems like Mr. Math that would be a 31% wouldn't it Oh that would be a 30 oh man <clears throat> sorry I'm slipping I'm slipping it's been a long long weekend <laughs> But yes, that, that, would, that does seem to be a correct assumption to make that uh, 31% are not from the European Union. Yeah. And do you want me to say that over again or do you want to just keep going from here? Uh, you can say it over again if you want. Save right. that for the bloops. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. So, Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, <laughs> that's awkward transition <laughs> from on me. <laughs> It's all very weird. And also, the last thing I'll say is that, I, you know, Paul, Paul slept due to his late arrival, but I had to wake up early to go load in. And upon my alarm going off, I'm, I was like, okay, I'm awake now. And then Paul said, and the dishwasher remains the same. And I go, <laughs> what? And then at that point, I realized Paul was sleep talking to me <laughs> about dishwashers. <laughs> So I've never experienced that before. We've spent we've spent many a night together in the same yeah. room and never had a, a Paul talking about those dishwashers. So that's so funny.